Welcome back to the Dad in a Rock podcast. This is Sean. And this is Chris. Hey, it's another week here at Dad in a Rock, our final week of the uh, June summer blockbuster series. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. Once again, watching these movies and enjoying the movies we haven't seen in some time and uh, not getting a chance to watch them throughout the week and cramming them at the end. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah, me too. I watched uh, Jurassic World, I don't know, a few days ago, but of course I watched World War Z, like pretty much got done about 15 minutes before we hopped on here. <laughs> Yeah, no, I crammed them both last night, so I watched uh, Jurassic World with a family. So I watched it with my four-year-old daughter, Skylar, and my seven-year-old, Zach. So I'm like, oh, man, are they going to sleep tonight? Have I permanently put them in my bed? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> they liked it? or oh, oh, it was weird on how much Skylar enjoyed it. It was almost uncanny on how much she enjoyed it. I was like, I didn't know really how to take it. That she enjoyed it as much as she did. Now, Zach, on the other hand, there were plenty of times where he got a little a little scared, uh, like where the Indominus was going ahead and biting down on the ball with the two kids right. in it. And there, there are quite a few of uh, scary points in that movie, definitely for little kids, but my daughter didn't flinch really once. I mean, outside of that, you know, you know, getting ready for, you know, recording this episode here, uh, I took Skylar, my daughter, on her first camping trip uh, this, this past uh, Wednesday. Oh, yeah. Which was uh, which was fun. It was kind of one of those, we only picked one night to go, just because I didn't know how the ordeal was going to wind up. Like, if you're going to get, like, three quarters way through it, 11 o'clock hits, and all of a sudden she's just crying because she wants her mommy. Right. And, and then I'm tearing down the tent at 11 o'clock at night and, you know, driving home so i wasn't risking two nights by uh, you know with that yeah but I, it went great us too we've gone camping uh i think this will be our third year we're kind of doing this we're making this kind of a, an annual thing which i know i really enjoy yep and uh zach does as well but we went to a different spot in our area there's a, there's a lake called caesar's creek and it has a, a, a it's more camping it, it reminds me more of camping like when i was you know younger so it was not a big open field uh, there was like a street and everyone kind of camped off to you know, each side of it. There was, you know, area to do other things. There was hiking. Uh, there was also swimming, which was uh, really nice. So I took the kids over to the, the little beach area and they went swimming for roughly about two hours. I just brought a, you know, a chair, sat down and put my feet, feet in the water and just let them go. And they had a blast and it made, I mean, it wore them out. Uh, came back, made some, you know, some s'mores, had hot dogs and it was a good, it was a good evening. I only, only had one. I want my mommy. Yeah. And that was that was later, basically right about bedtime, and right. uh, her and Zach went and laid down, and they were good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate you taking a test run at Caesars Creek there. Uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, you and I and Zach and Verona are going to be heading up there uh, later in July. Well, that's how Dad and Rock was formed, wasn't it, at one of these camping trips? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was formed around the campfire. It was one of those... Hey, man, I've got an idea. I've kind of been wanting to do this. Uh, What do you think? And, you know, a few months after that camping trip happened, uh, you know, Dad in a Rock happened. Coming up on our year. The Dad in a Rock baby was birthed. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's always, it's kind of funny because it's always become an annual thing for our camping trips. Yeah. That we run into a raccoon. Mm -hmm. And the raccoons did not disappoint. Oh, no. You know my son nicknamed this raccoon Rascal. Yes. Uh, the first one, the time we went, we left the cooler out. The damn thing went and stole our burgers. We wound <laughs> up at you know, a local restaurant for dinner the next day. Yep. Uh, the following year, we thought we went ahead and took care of everything, but we left a little bag of trash out, which had like a bite of a hamburger and some chips in it. The little crap you know, wound up messing with that again. The, this past one, I thought I was as diligent as I possibly could be. And apparently Skylar dropped a marshmallow and less than a bite of a hot dog. And 
I didn't see this the, the raccoon. Now I was sitting by the fire, right? And I I heard stuff in the woods. You can clearly hear things walking around. We were coming back from actually going swimming. There was a deer just eating grass in one of the open campsites. Okay. Amongst everybody. So it was like, okay, he, he's cool. He doesn't care. So I was like, okay, there's probably deer walking around back there or, or, or raccoons or whatever else wants to go bumping tonight. Mm-hmm. And Zach is actually walking back to the van because I had the idea of having the iPad out, loading a movie on there so they can watch it offline. Right. I completely botched it. No internet. Was, nothing got downloaded on time. So I messed that one. Oh, no. <laughs> I let him sit in the van and I turned the van on, the key on, so they can watch a movie with uh, the theater in a van for like 20 30 minutes yeah well he got out and he was walking somewhere and our neighbors was like hey meet the little man little man watch it little man and he's behind you a raccoon was walking up behind him oh no Whoa. and and he never seen it and it freaked him out when he turned around and seen him and he ran to the van apparently this this, this family has been there for a few days and they said this uh, raccoon has tore into one of their tents mm-hmm. where they have like a screened in tent they've got things in and he tore into that and uh, they brought their dog over a few times chased this raccoon around pretty much that was the end of the evening I sat down I was like okay you know what things gone I'm just gonna relax by the fire a little longer before I go to bed right and dude I swear I heard sniffing not that far from me oh no and I was like, yep, I'm done. I'm uh, going to bed. <laughs> uh, oh, that old rascal. He followed you. Oh, yeah. Him and his cousins you know, live all over the place. These little trash pandas. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm anticipating some type of running. Now, I did go ahead and look into what kind of deters them. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's chili powder. Oh, really? So I may go buy a cheap thing, a generic chili powder, and just kind of spread it around in our area. You know, when we go to kind of deter these little boogers from, you know, coming and poking around. Yeah, that's very interesting. I've never heard of that. We'll have to uh, see if that works. Yeah, I'm not batting on it. So do you have any uh, fun news or anything happening on your side this past week? Yeah, a little bit of movement with our house search. Uh, A lot of movement, actually. It feels like we were, you know, kind of in a hurry up and wait mode for months and months, but... Over the last couple of weeks, we've done a bunch, and uh, actually, our realtor himself is going to purchase our house. He put an offer in that was fair, and you know, he wants to kind of convert it into a rental property, and he's been looking to do that for a while. And our house kind of matched what he was looking for, so we accepted, and it saves us from putting it on the market or anything like that. So, yeah, we were quick to accept because it was a, a good offer, and so things are progressing, moving forward to the big move. That's awesome. I know that that'd be the one part of like selling the house that I would not, you know, want to. I'll be anticipating wanting to move, yeah, and buying a new one and finding a new one. But the whole process of selling the old one, uh, it just doesn't sound like a uh, an adventure I really want to go down. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a drag because you get a lot of folks in and out, and you have to like vacate the property in a moment's notice, and then you come back to all the complaints they have about your house, <laughs> and uh, didn't seem like something that we were looking forward to. But now we get to avoid that entirely. Yeah, we'll be happy to put a bid on your house if you fix this, 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 and this, and, and then you pay this and this, too. <laughs> right. Uh, no thanks. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll take the next offer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So this week here, uh, we're going ahead and we're finishing our four-part series of our summer blockbusters. Uh, this week, we're in the, the 2010s, uh, which seems like yesterday, but, well, it kind of was. Still, but. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> uh, this one, I mean, honestly, for me, this period was one of the hardest for me to find a movie. Yeah, me too. That fit our criteria and was still worthy of doing a show on. Right. I mean, like I said, we, it was full of Marvel movies and Star Wars movies. And it's like we decided, okay, we weren't going to do that. We were some movies that people may have either forgotten about or still love outside of those mainstream ones. Yeah, we wanted to make sure that there were a couple of movies that, well, first actually came out in the summer. That's kind of a big deal if it's a summer blockbuster. Yeah. 
But, you know, blockbusters are also ones that, uh, you know, they made some decent money. They were fairly popular uh, enough to be successful. And I think these ones fit the bill. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We went ahead and picked uh, Jurassic World. Which, I mean, when it comes to blockbuster money-wise, this is probably the biggest one yeah. uh, that achieved that. And the other one is uh, something that's a lot closer in to uh, current events, which is which was kind of weird to watch. <laughs> I love the movie. Yeah. But uh, World War Z. So uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and get into these two here. We figure we'll start with, uh, you know, fun-loving dinosaurs who like eating people <laughs> uh, with Jurassic World. <laughs> So what's what's with this one here? Is this something? Is this one that you were looking forward to when uh, you heard that they were making you know more of the Jurassic Park movies? Yeah, um, I remember being fairly excited because I mean you and me both. We went to go see Jurassic the first Jurassic Park when it came out, and we followed the next films, you know, Lost World and Jurassic Park three, and then the franchise kind of lied dormant forever. God, they were even making scripts to where they were making like human dinosaur hybrids and all kind of weird action movie esque kind of of like uh, spin-offs of Jurassic Park that thank goodness never came to fruition. But yeah, once they finally got going and they got the right crew and cast involved, uh, it seemed pretty exciting. The only part that I didn't really care for is that none of the original cast was going to be back, but my overall enjoyment of the movie did, didn't really matter. I liked it. That didn't bother me too much just because it's been so long and they were trying to keep you know a, a, a fresh look at it. The way they went ahead and did it. Yeah. Uh, by going ahead and like being another park, the continuum of Hammond's kind of uh, creation. It's cool how they brought them in later mm-hmm. in the next movie, then how they're bringing them as all the cast back for the one they're working on now, Domination. But that, that wasn't a big hang-up for me. I mean, really, there wasn't a whole lot of a hang-up for me here. I'm, I'm watching it, and I pretty much enjoyed it out the gate. I mean, from the points where they were kind of pulling in the, the original three piece by piece from you know, the pterodactyls in the birdcage and how they got out. And how like T Rex got out, kind of. Yeah. You know how he originally got out of his cage by busting through the fence, so that you know this Adominus Rex dinosaur busted through the door when they he got he the dinosaur tricked him. <laughs> 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 this one here was uh was directed here by Colin Trevorrow, and uh, I couldn't find a whole lot on them. I mean. He did, like, I keep on stressing everyone to go ahead and go to YouTube and watch Battle on Big Rock. Right. Because it falls after the second Jurassic World movie, and it's amazing. And definitely seeing that it's a YouTube movie, it, it blew me away. And then he's working on the Jurassic World domination. The other, you know, I think he did uh, the second Jurassic World as well. But, uh, I mean, that's really noteworthy-wise director. I mean, that's pretty much his his game. He's an indie filmmaker. Um, I saw a movie that he did called Safety Not Guaranteed. Kind of an indie film, but also like a time travel film. It was very interesting, but nothing that would I, I would have expected him to, uh, you know, take ownership of a big franchise like Jurassic Park. So it was enough to in- impress some studio people. He signed on to, you know, kind of do this uh, remake, reboot quote of, of the Jurassic Park series. Of course, we'll get into it. I mean, it was highly successful. Uh, he had so much success that he was actually tapped to write the script and direct uh, Star Wars episode 9 Unfortunately, that never kind of came to fruition either. As we all know, J.J. Abrams kind of took that job. Yeah, I mean, he's he's out there. He's doing big movies, and he's still out there. A lot of these, like, you know, these big movies like this have you know directors that have like a long line of history with yeah. having bigger movies and know how to handle those bigger movies. It worked. I mean, it worked out great for him. It's had to have catapulting his career uh, into the stratosphere. But uh, this one here, well, I wanted to pick this one here between one of the two of us because it's actually released on my birthday, uh, June fourteenth. Oh yeah. So. Uh, it's a flag day movie. 
uh, of 15 here. Uh, it had a big budget, a budget of 150 million. Man, did it really <laughs> it exceeded its budget by quite a bit? It made 1.6 billion with, with a big old B. Billion with a B. Yeah. Billion with a B. So I think uh, Mr. Tavaro uh, was a success. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, these days, uh, billion dollar movies aren't that infrequent because Disney's had quite a few of them here in the last few years. But they're reserved for certain studios. Yeah, I mean, they've mostly been Disney, and this is not a Disney movie. It's uh, from Universal Pictures, so you know they had to be happy with them. Oh, yeah. You know, outside of uh, Trevorrow here, I mean, I was looking into who actually did the music and the score and everything for it. And it was, Michael Giacchino. I mean, he's he's got uh, quite a few, like, places where his name's on. From uh, Spider-Man, Far From Home. He's actually got some credit from Rogue One, Star Wars Story. Yeah. Star Trek Into the Darkness. So he's been out there for a little while. And I think he did a great job of actually piecing together, sampling a lot of the, the original Jurassic Park stuff. Yeah. So when, when you hear it, there is an immediate, like, connection to it. So you're, you're not searching for the, I get like goosebumps. Right. Like when I hear certain parts of like the the old stuff when you hear the dee, dee, yeah, I, I I'm butchering it, but <laughs> yeah, he's um, Michael Giacchino is one of the uh, kind of the staples here in current Hollywood. I mean, these days where you know the big heavy hitters like John Williams and Danny Elfman are a little bit less active, Giacchino's kind of taken that role a little bit. He works a lot with J.J. Uh, Abrams. He did the score for the TV show Lost, and he did the Incredibles films. You know, that kind of jazzy ba-da-da-da-da. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a great composer, and I thought he did a great job really kind of harkening back to the old John Williams stuff in this one. Yeah, everything about it from, you know, when they first were you know, riding the, like the monorail. Yep. And it shows them going through the Jurassic World or park. Yeah. You know, gate. And they said it was kind of reclaimed from the original park. Yeah. Or that uh, one scene that I remember pretty distinctly is when the boys find the old Jurassic Park building that's all grown over and they start walking through it and they see the old banner that fell, uh, one of the last shots of Jurassic Park with the T-Rex yeah. roaring. And you just hear the piano keys. Dun, 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 just like very slow and deliberate as they're kind of exploring this uh, old abandoned place. And it just it just took you right there. Oh, yeah. I, that, and that's one of the things I loved about it. They embraced the history of the movie and had their own movie. So they didn't run from the past to the other movies and try to like, do a complete reboot. They were building off the history of the prior three movies. Yeah, that's for sure. And that's that's a hard balance to strike. I mean, a lot of these like reboot calls where they're taking an older property and trying to make a sequel like 20 years after the fact. I think Creed was another example of just like hitting it out the park yeah. about like having that same kind of reverence of the old, but like bringing in some new stuff. And this one, too, is a great balance, I mean, between the new characters. Just the whole, you know, imagine if John Hammond's park actually took off the ground. Imagine if Jurassic Park didn't have that tragedy that, you know, in 93 that we saw where they had to shut the <laughs> yeah. place down. And it actually, his vision actually came to be, you know, like we, we got to see it in the opening few scenes in this movie where the park is like running and it's hugely successful. And I mean, it looks like a full out, almost like a zoo type setup where when they're actually flying in and flying over in the helicopter. Yeah. All you see is green. Yeah. You really don't see much until they actually show like the resort area where, you know, the, the guests are, you're eating, you know, all that. Right. I mean, it looks spectacular. I'll, I'll say that. Definitely in 4K and the sound and everything, it, it looked it looked the part. I don't know. Let's get a get a little bit into the plot. Where do we begin in this movie? Uh, let's just start maybe with a, a brief overlook of the cast here. We have Chris Pratt here is playing Owen. Uh, basically... A, a trainer of these velociraptors, these four velociraptors. 
uh, that he's basically been training since since birth. He's become basically what he says as the uh, the alpha. Yeah. So they 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 basically obey his uh, his commands. He walks around the top of him. He's got like a clicker and he feeds him. <laughs> yeah. And uh and they they trust him. Yeah. That's um the one pill that you kind of have to swallow in this movie. If you can get beyond the believability of this pack of velociraptors accepting this guy as their alpha and listening to him for treats, basically being trained almost like uh, seals or lions. <laughs> um, if you can get past that, then I think you're fine. The rest of the film, you, you kind of buy into the the idea as a whole. Based on a lot of the things that I'm watching recently, I'm watching it for some reason. I've been all about these zoo shows. Mm-hmm. Like there's one on Disney Plus that uh, is, it's called Secrets of the Zoo. It's all about the Columbus Zoo. Like they're, they're called the Wilds. It's about an hour south. Right. And they show interactions. There's basically one curator that has raised a, a cheetah. She's had her in her home. Basically, this cheetah looks at her as mom. Right. And she runs around. She feeds him. She'll, I mean, she'll lay on the floor and play with him. So just some of those, those real life type things. I can almost believe it. Definitely if it was based from hatching. Yeah. <laughs> not birth. Yeah, where they imprint on him at birth. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think that's a far stretch. Seeing that they, the way that they were saying that they created these, these raptors is they got to, you know, complete their genome by putting other pieces in there. Yeah, and I think they did enough in the movie to make it believable to where there was still this danger around the raptors, even though they were his pack and he had names for them. You know, there was that scene early on where the guy, you know, fell into their cage, fell into their area, and uh, it was very dangerous to, to try to get him out. Oh, and Chris Pratt's character had to run in there, uh, basically without any kind of protection, to try to calm them down from, you know, going against their instincts of pouncing on the guy. <laughs> And I think that was the first time he's been in the cage eye to eye with him. Yeah. Based on, you know, the reaction of his his friend and everything. Yeah. Which was pretty cool to see. But uh and then we got another character here played by Bryce Dallas Howard, Claire. So she's basically she runs the park. Right. She's the one that makes all the calls. I mean, she does she's not the money, but she's the one that money meets with. Yeah. And it, it's up to her to make sure things are running smoothly. Uh, if something goes wrong, she's the one that makes the calls on when to do things. And then she's the one that's supposed to be having a weekend with her nephews that she uh, completely botches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's not being a very good aunt in this movie. But I got to tell you, I adore Bryce Dallas Howard. She is Ron Howard's daughter. So she's been around the Hollywood scene uh, for a long, long time since she was a kid. And she directed one of the episodes of The Mandalorian. And if you watch, Watch her kind of talk at that director's roundtable in that Mandalorian behind the scenes show. She has such a respect and affinity for all these movies that we love and grew up on, like Star Wars and Jurassic Park. And um, you could tell, like, when she speaks about Jurassic Park in particular, she's so knowledgeable. She has such a love for it. So it must have been just a coup for her to actually be in one of these movies. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I got to tell you, like, the just the relationship and the, the spark in between uh, her character and Chris Pratt's, I thought it was... You know, a lot of times stuff in movies like this can be really hokey, but I thought it was like a throwback to old Hollywood. I thought they had a lot of chemistry, and uh, I actually enjoyed it. Yeah, from the first time that we actually see them together, yeah. when she pulls up in his car and he's fixing his motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> you could tell they had some history. Oh, yeah, when he's going through when, you know, what the raptors need, and he basically puts a fist out there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she convinces him to come along, and she's like, uh, well, the raptors can smell you, or something like that, or basically says, you stink. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, apparently these two, they had maybe a one-night stand in the past, and they never called each other back. But you could tell they're kind of polar opposites, right? I mean, her character is, like, very punctual. Everything has a schedule. She's very, you know, kind of wound tight. Um, Why he's a guy who's a little bit dirtier, a little bit more loosey-goosey, kind of go with the flow. Well, it, it, it didn't help him in that first date, but it helps him in the, the events of this movie. Yeah. Yeah, she comes running to him because she knows that he will, uh, well, he can fight his way out of pretty much anything. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, from the very beginning, I mean, I, I thought this was a fun way to start it with the, with the family, with uh, Judy Greer's character, Karen. Right. So basically, Claire's sister is sending her kids to go ahead and you know, spend the weekend with Claire. And you see them getting ready, and you know, the one boy doesn't want to go. He's mm-hmm. lovesick. He's only going to be gone for the weekend or a week, so not very long. And uh, the one boy is, like, all about it. He loves dinosaurs. He right. Knows everything about him. He's he's all about it. But uh, it was a line when they were in the actual like airport that the dad said, which I thought was freaking hilarious. It was like so much for our last family breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was funny in the scene, but I mean you get later that these two parents are divorcing, so it legitimately was going to be their last family breakfast together, which is kind of uh, you know not funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's kind of cracking cracking jokes on it. Yeah, and but, uh, uh, the wife was immediately like, why do you have to say that? You could tell there was like something going on between the uh, Judy Greer's character and the dad. The dad, who was actually played by the same actor who's in The Office. I don't know if there's any Office heads out there, but he played uh, David Wallace in The Office. But yeah, I guess these parents, they're, they're you know using this time to actually go through the divorce process. So they send uh, both their boys to go to Jurassic World to maybe have some fun with their aunt while they're doing this. Yeah, it was never like that like storyline was never actually even revisited. Like, so we don't even know if this tragic event even stopped that from taking place. Yeah, you don't really get too much of it, but it does give a little bit of backstory on these two boys and kind of their relationship and their their thoughts and fears of the past and the future. I know they kind of have that one-on-one talk in the train ride as they're going, and that's kind of the, the heart of their relationship is the older brother kind of being dismissive of the younger brother, and then eventually as they're having to go through these events, coming to really start to be a good, protective older brother again. Yeah, they that way they mend fences. Yeah. He's trying to show him a good time, you know, which goes completely sideways. <laughs> When they're in that, like, big hamster ball. God, that was awesome, though, too. I mean, this movie just has a ton of kind of spectacle, you know, action set pieces. But they were really inventive. And um, that hamster ball thing was one of them with uh, Jimmy Fallon <laughs> kind of narrating their way through uh, through their path there. Yeah, and that was actually one of the first scenes that I got a whoa out of Skylar. <laughs> because when, she's, when they're in the hamster ball and they're rolling around and they first see there's a... Those dinosaurs running by him. Yeah. That was the first, like, and that's almost an homage to the original Jurassic Park. Too. Right, with the Gallimimus, yeah. Yeah, and when they're running from him, actually, on foot. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first, like, whoa scene that I got out of Skyler, <laughs> which was pretty fun. No, that's very cool. I mean, just to round out some of the other uh, key players here in the cast, we've got a couple of uh, techs up in sort of the uh, the communications or watchtower area of the park, uh, one of which played by Jack Johnson, who's pretty much would be me, you know, with the Jurassic Park t-shirt and glasses and, <laughs> you know... Uh, he, he was kind of funny throughout the film. That's such a bad taste to wear that shirt. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, collector's item off eBay. But he was funny. And you know you know what kind of caught me by surprise, and I, I'd forgotten he was even in this movie, is uh, the character Hoskins, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. I don't know if you're familiar with Vincent D'Onofrio at all, but this guy, he is kind of a chameleon. He was Gomer Pyle in Full Metal Jacket, so he goes back years. He was the alien in Men in Black, you know, who was the bug but he wore that that farmer's skin 
And he was like, I need sugar, water. <laughs> he was that guy. I mean, he's been in The Magnificent Seven recently. He's also played Kingpin in the Daredevil Netflix series. This guy is like a chameleon. He's an incredible actor. And he's just like chewing up the scenes as a bad guy. Oh, yeah. He's easily, he's easy not to like in this movie. <laughs> he's very easy to hit. Yeah. And I, I did recognize him. I mean, I'm not, yeah. I couldn't place where I knew him from. But it's one of those, one of those actors that you knew from somewhere else. And just, you really never dug into it. And I don't blame you because he is literally, like, he's a chameleon. Like, he really, he has so many different parts and he, he never looks the same twice. So. Um, he was just kind of a coup to have in this movie. And one of the first that he actually stars in with Chris Pratt, like I said, he was in Magnificent Seven with Chris Pratt. He also did a, another Western that he directed uh, that Chris Pratt was in. So this was kind of the start of their uh, Hollywood friendship, I guess. <laughs> what do you think of uh, our Frank Han, the new kind of owner of the parks the one that uh hammond went ahead and trusted to go ahead and continue a Jurassic park uh, i guess with the company engine yeah i liked him immediately honestly i mean he wasn't in the movie for a terribly long amount of time but he was charming he seemed to have the right outlook i mean he really wanted to follow in john hammond's footsteps i mean the good parts not necessarily the uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> parts where you goof up and people get eaten well he succeeded there too <laughs> <laughs> he sure did he became John Hammond again. I don't know. He just had a reverence. I mean, as um, Bryce Dallas Howard's Claire was kind of talking about, you know, all the numbers and spreadsheets and polls as far as customer satisfaction, you know, he was telling her to like actually people watch and how are the animals? And you got to look them in the eye and see how they're doing. And he doesn't forget that these are actually animals and like they need to be cared for and they're not like props, yeah. you know, he, I, I think he had the right attitude. Yeah, no, he was absolutely worried about how people were feeling, if they're having a good time, Yeah, if the animals were you know enjoying themselves as well which is kind of kind of a funny you know, you know conversation to have yeah but I, like you said if you go to a, if you go to a zoo you know if an animal's happy oh yeah so it's kind of a, it's the exact same you know parallel of the two yeah so when he um crashes that helicopter from the pterodactyls that was that was you know you felt it you're like oh man that guy's gone <laughs> kind of seen that one coming though when he could when he <laughs> couldn't find his his actual instructor he's flying up there you know flying yeah. this helicopter with this big old gun on it the birdcage thing happens and they're flying into it. It's just okay. Bye bye. Yeah. So I mean, really, once again in this movie, just an incredible cast of characters. Uh, a lot of folks that we you kind of. Uh, it's easy to to get to know them and and start to care for them. And when you're in a kind of big monster movie like, and these that's what these are. These Jurassic Park films. I mean, they're kind of sci-fi. It's cool to be watching dinosaurs, but at the end of the day, it's you're kind of watching a, a, like a, like an old school 1950s monster movie where there's danger around every corner. At least some scenes, and then other scenes when the dinosaurs are 25 feet tall, then it's more like a Godzilla film or something with all the destruction. <laughs> oh, see, uh, Skylar and uh, Zach thought that like swimming dinosaur shark oh, thing. Oh yeah. Was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> when it jumped up and ate that great white shark and you know, splashed back down and they went underneath the water and seeing it, they thought that, that was pretty cool. Now, I thought that was an awesome like visual addition sure. to the other ones because they didn't really give you any type of swimming dinosaurs. They gave you you know the, the pterodactyls right. and they gave you the T-Rexes and the raptors and brontosauruses and all those, but they didn't give you anything in the water. And this time they actually gave you that water experience, which uh, was the only thing missing from the first view. You know, this is Jurassic World. It's actually a successful version of Jurassic Park. They're so successful, in fact, that they're actually running into guests being kind of bored 
I mean, they live in a world where kids are used to the fact that dinosaurs actually do exist, and they ex- exist in this theme park. <laughs> yeah, Triceratops riding petting zoo. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> Which was, like, both cool to see and also kind of, like, humbling and kind of disappointing to see at the same time. Like, back in the day of Jurassic Park, these creatures were thought of as just being, like, walking miracles. Uh, and now that they're just, you know, being ridden on like uh, like a little pony, it was just like, wow, we really got there, huh? <laughs> but, yeah, like you were saying, we're there were in that time where you're used to seeing you know a raptor you're used to seeing t-rex right out. i mean they showed them lowering you know a cow down t-rexes came out and devoured it and everyone's taking pictures like they're feeding a lion at a zoo yeah i mean they were getting to the point now where they're basically creating new dinosaurs right. so they're they're mixing dna and you know or like dna from other types of animals out there to make you know a bigger badder scarier kind of dinosaur and they came up with one called the indominus rex which uh this thing should never made it out of the test tube. <laughs> no, so they wanted the bigger, better, scarier dinosaur, the one that was going to draw in more tickets and more crowds and keep the funds going. Yeah, I mean, essentially, they took some DNA from your top stars from the original films, the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the, the Velociraptors, blended them together with some other uh, special features like camouflage. <laughs> yeah, from the cuttlefish itself, we come to find out. And yeah, like, uh, what were you guys even thinking? <laughs> yeah, this doesn't seem good at all. <laughs> no. And Chris Pratt's character was the first to be like, uh, what did you guys do? Yeah. What, what what did you make here? Yeah, because when they actually go and see it for the first time, they can't find it. And they actually go in the cage because they think it's gone when he sees, like, the actual scrape marks. They thought he climbed out of the actual containment area. Yeah. I mean, not only was this thing, like, dangerous, but it was smart as well with that, you know, camouflage yep. and to get in this. And this is where it all goes haywire. I mean, they're in there, then they realize that, you know, he's in there too, and they're trying to get out. And I think one of the handlers winds up getting, uh, you know, becoming a snack uh, actually in the cage. <laughs> and then, you know, Pratt's running out, and he just busts through the door, and he basically eats the other guy, the other, like, security guard. Right. After he knocks over the truck, and then Pratt's laying underneath the truck, the other one, he basically cuts the gas line and douses himself in gas to kind of cover his scent to uh, survive that, you know, opening horror scene. So we already talked about some of the larger kind of set pieces throughout the the middle of the film. What did you think about this awesome finale? I mean, I you could tell I I liked it already. We kind kind of had a three way dance between uh, the Raptor Pack, the old T Rex from the first Jurassic Park film, and this Indominus Rex. What did you think about that? Oh, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, we go all the way back to where uh, you know Hoskins was always wanting to weaponize yeah. uh, these these Raptors, so he got the chance once a Missouri when he crashed his helicopter. Right. So now that he, him, and Engine are taken over, they went ahead and get him ready, and they are basically hunting down the Indominus. And well, that's when they find out that Indominus actually is part Raptor too. And then there was a new Alpha. So now they're on the run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now they're being chased by Indominus Rex and the Raptor pack. Like they're not having a good day. Yeah, no, but it all ended when they were back in the main area. Yeah. So you have the main area, you have them running through like the shops and everything from these Raptors. And one of the Raptors, I think it was blue, may it may have been blue, basically eats Hoskins, takes him apart. And they run out, and then they run into Indominus again. Yeah. That's when you basically see Blue and the Raptors accept Owen again as basically their buddy. It's like, hold on, we're mixed up here. <laughs> we were- <laughs> well, ba- yeah, they see that, well, they see Rex, you know, kind of attacking the old Alpha, and they, they you, can, you literally see these Raptors, like, make a choice between the two, and they choose Owen by attacking Indominus. So, and then, of course, Claire, she makes the uh, baller move of <laughs> releasing the T-Rex. Um, well, which- one of the kids said, we need 
need more teeth. Yeah, we need more teeth. And uh, boy, she goes and contacts Jack Johnson up there at the communications tower. And he opens up the gate for her. And she grabs the flare, just like Grant did in the first Jurassic Park. And uh, T-Rex starts chasing her. And boy, yeah. I got I got chills to watch that T-Rex run every time. Yeah, well, when he walks out when at first and he kind of roars and he walks yeah. towards her and she runs she's running in heels still and then she throws the flare yeah it's, uh and then they, then they start going at it and it's not going well for t-rex no i mean he's getting his butt kicked pretty you know, for the most part then a raptor kicks in and yeah they start teaming up on him and then they finally get him down and he's in front of that big like pool and when i was in the theater scene watching i didn't see this coming I mean, it's got like I think an audible like, gasp out. Of him. I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> when that big old dinosaur jumps out of the water, grabs him, and pulls him under. There's always a bigger fish. <laughs> yeah. And then you then you see that the, the uh, T Rex and you see Blue look at each other. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. I, they, they kind of give each other a nod, like, "Okay, yeah, day. almost like <laughs> a little <laughs> sign of respect. Like, uh, boy, it's been a rough day. Let's just part ways. <laughs> and then you then you see Blue look, go back and look at uh oh, and Owen's like, "No," <laughs> because yeah. he flat out says no. <laughs> And then you see Blue kind of run off into the, uh, you know, the woods kind of takes off by himself. A huge climax. I mean, and really well done. I thought the special effects were amazing. Um, I think, you know, the dinosaurs are mostly CG these days. They got it down pat. There was never a moment where I felt taken out of the movie because of the special effects didn't quite hit it. I mean, uh, they lived up to the legacy of good special effects in a Jurassic Park movie. And the, I mean, everything, the score, the pacing, the cast, set pieces, they really knocked it out of the park. Like, I forgot how much I enjoyed this film in the theaters until I just revisited here now for this. But I got to say, it's probably my second favorite Jurassic Park movie. What about you? Oh, yeah, easily. I mean, the first one is always going to be near and dear. Yeah. But yeah, this one here, I mean, even the, the second one was actually good on a whole different level. They they went for the, the scary. For uh, The Lost World? Yeah, The Lost World. Yeah. They really went for that scary. But uh, I mean, I, I even loved how this one ended because it, it harkened back to the original again. Yeah. T-Rex on the helicopter pad. You know, giving a big roar like, this is my kingdom, leave me alone. <laughs> and uh, I kind of went to where the family and the kids and parents and they kind of went away. I, I, I love this one. I'm, I'm sad that it's been so long since I've seen it. I don't think I'll let it be that long again. I'm kind of actually miss may send me down a rabbit hole where I watch all the original three. Yep. And then watch this one again and then watch two before, say, the third one of this series comes out. Yeah. For whatever reason, you guys haven't checked out the Jurassic Park slash world movies in a bit. I mean, do yourself a favor. They're just like fun. You don't have to, you know, study a bunch of books or know a bunch of, about the lore or anything. I mean, you follow them through and through. Um, I think they're terrific. The, the latest one. Uh, I don't think the latest Jurassic World movie was as good as the first Jurassic World, but at the same time, you know, they're still good, they're still exciting, and I'll definitely be in line day one to see Jurassic World domination coming out soon. Oh, yeah, definitely they're going to have all those original cast members back in it. Yeah. That by itself will have my butt in the theater. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Waiting for someone from the original cast to find their end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can only tempt fate so many times. Well, I mean, we both love that movie. I mean, if, it, if it's an obvious, we kind of went on quite a bit longer than I think we intended on going yeah. on this movie here. Uh, but like we were mentioning, uh, World War Z was the other one we did. Uh, that one was released back on uh, June 21st of 13. Uh, budget on this one was $190 million. I mean, it made $540 uh, million. I mean, nothing like the, you know, the billion that our first movie made. Yeah. But uh, I mean, this one here, I love this movie. I love this so much that I love the book. 
The book is nothing like the movie. Right. So if you go into reading the book expecting the movie, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah, I heard that that the book was really different from the movie, and like the movie was almost just kind of takes place in that world, but completely different plot. I mean, what was the book even like? So the movie itself, the movie is just one character going through trying to figure out what happened and how to maybe fix or slow down this problem so they can basically stop it. Right. The book itself is a bunch of first person occur- occurrences of what's happening. So for instance, if this happened, it would be my story on how my family survived to a certain point or what we did. And it's all over the world. So it'd be here in Ohio, then it'd be somebody up in you know Seattle and India. Okay. And it's all these first person accounts of what's going on and how they made it through it, which it gave it a whole different feel. So it didn't actually even feel like a book you were reading. It was more like a journal. Oh. And that's kind of the feel you get from it because it's you, you're not following one character throughout the duration of the book. Right. Which uh, it was a whole different feel of like a book for me, which was very, very enjoyable. Yeah, I can see, I guess, why they would have a difficult time adapting that into an actual movie and going the way they did with this kind of more centered plot around this main character. Jerry Lane, played by Brad Pitt, who, you know, he's a movie star. I think this is one of his better roles. But I think he's really good in this movie. Oh, I love this movie. And I, I believed every minute of it. Yeah. I believe that when he got out of, you know, what he was doing, he wanted to spend more time with his kids. And then when they were calling him back to what he was doing to figure out what was going on, his first inkling was, no, I'm staying with my kids. Right. And then they, they kind of blackmailed him into doing it. It's like, okay, well, if you, if you don't go, you guys can't stay here. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's a little bit later in the movie, but I got to tell you this opening, and, and you and I talked a little bit about it uh, before we got on the podcast here. But just the like the opening two minutes of news footage of talking about a pandemic going across the world, man, it hit a little bit too close to home. Some of the scenes in this movie. Oh yeah, but people weren't saying what's happening, and this is that this is fake, and the whole thing, and there's nothing's happening. Yeah, it was even before we get to the looting of the grocery store when that first outbreak takes place in Philadelphia, where he's at. Yeah. That newsreel, right, was very very surreal. And actually, I love this you know franchise movie and book. It was hard for me to watch. Yeah, just because it was hitting so close to home. Now, I mean, we're different in what we're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, COVID nineteen is not zombification. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I think one of the reasons I really enjoyed this movie as well. They said the word zombie, I think, less than five times the whole movie. Right. So they really weren't referring to them as zombies. They're referring it to as an infection. Yeah. Uh, some type of viral or some type of bacterial, which I, I appreciate. Because I'm not a big zombie movie for person. I like zombie lengths. That's more of a comedy. Right. Uh, this one here, I enjoyed when I first seen it more than I thought I would. Just like a, for the reasons I was saying. it did. They weren't addressing them as zombies themselves. Yeah, I did enjoy how this movie was sort of an exploration of how you investigate what's going on during uh, this worldwide crisis. I mean, resources are limited. Basically, you know, this plague spreads like wildfire across uh, not only the entire U.S., but uh, worldwide due to airports. I mean, the largest cities are taken down so fast, and you get a glimpse of that in the opening few scenes of this movie. Brad Pitt's character and his family, they reside in the Philadelphia area, and, uh, you know, they're just kind of downtown in traffic, and all of a sudden, just a a wave of gnashing zombies that are just, like, going through anything, sprinting towards you, uh, putting their heads through windshields to get to you, to bite you, and and you turn within a matter of seconds. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was, like, he was counting to, like, eight Mississippis, or something like that before, yeah. you know, re- kind of reanimation took place. It was, it was nuts. And he was kind of watching. I remember 
one of the scenes where he's seeing it actually take place. And he was just watching him while they were getting into that RV. And it was like he was just kind of watching the whole thing through. And he kind of he noticed how fast. And it was kind of one of those things that he was just kind of following away. Because he, I think he knew something was coming that he was going to be caught back into action. Right. Even though he didn't want to. Yeah, and immediately, I mean, you you feel for this family. You know, you and I are family guys, so, you know, just the thought of a threat like this happening and you having to, like, protect your family. Dude, it's another one of those with little kids and little girls. And, man, like I said before, the older I get, the more of a family man I'm becoming, the sappier I'm becoming. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, zombies are scary, but people freaking out are also scary. When society crumbles and all of a sudden you got people that aren't infected, knocking you over and pushing you down and pointing guns at you just to take what's yours and people start hoarding medicines and stuff. I mean, that's the stuff, like you mentioned, that started to hit a little close to home with recent events. Yeah. Well, you had that one guy when they got into that, that like grocery store that was like the pharmacy. Yeah. Uh, he basically pulled his gun on Brad Pitt's character and then he realized what he was looking for and then he gave him everything and he actually gave him extra on what works well with his kids. Right. So you still see that humanity but you've seen him guarding the medicine from looters themselves which was a nice little thing in the movie by itself. Yeah, so after kind of this chaos in the streets, uh, Brad Pitt and his family, they they find a bit of a safe haven in this apartment building kind of hold up with this other family who uh, ultimately decides to stay in their apartment once Brad Pitt and his family decide to leave yeah i mean he basically even tells him what his job used to be he Mm -hmm. says no in situations like this mobility is life yeah and when the kid translated it back to his dad his dad asked him if there was anything else they needed because they were staying right which it was a death sentence turns out to be a yeah it was a very bad choice and then uh, when no they're going to the roof you know trying to get to the helicopter you see the boy come up and actually takes a shot at one of the zombie-like characters and saves brad pitt's character and they basically adopt him you know throughout the movie yeah you can um you can kind of infer that tommy the little boy was the lone survivor of his family. His family got taken out and he went and actually got up and, and met Brad up at the rooftop. And uh, during this scene, as Brad Pitt's family is escaping on the helicopter, you actually do see the briefest of weirdest cameos by Matthew Fox of Lost, which we only kind of mention on this show, which is weird. Uh, but yeah, Matthew Fox, he was in like literally two scenes of this movie. He played a paratrooper that assisted Brad Pitt's family getting on helicopters two times. I don't know why he was in this movie, but he sure as heck is for some reason. (laughs) Maybe he just thought it was a cool little like, or maybe he was working on other things and it was some way to get into this. Like a quick, you know, two, three day shoot, then he's out. Yeah, it could be that, or maybe the the film originally had that character more fleshed out, and they just got cut in the editing room. I don't know. It could be any number of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a little weird, a little like uh, in and out for him. His family does find safety on this aircraft carrier that's apparently like 200 miles east of New York, so that helicopter took him quite a, quite a ways offshore there. But yeah, you kind of see this uh, remaining humanity kind of hold up in this boat, trying to decide like what the heck to do, what are their next steps. Yeah, and you keep on hearing like if you're not essential personnel you got to go here because they're going to relocate you and you see that more and more throughout the parts of the movie and now people are basically so upset about it because it's basically a death sentence you know them kicking them off the ship right but you can kind of understand it because there's only so much room and they've got to go ahead and get the people on there that are trying to go ahead and figure out what's going on and actually stop it yeah but it's one of those very dangerous lines you're walking where you're losing your humanity by basically sentencing someone to death to try to save others. Yeah, so like out in the middle of the ocean, they are safe because the virus can't get to them. These zombies can't swim to where they are, right? So they are absolutely 100% safe. But, you know, I don't care how safe you think, and we see it later in Jerusalem, I don't care how safe you think 
these cities or these constructs or these safe havens on land are, they're really not safe because <laughs> these zombies, just how much they're looking to like spread that infection and they, they don't stop by any means to actually get to their next victim. There's really nowhere safe on land. Yeah, no, there really isn't. Yeah, and you're talking about yeah, Jerusalem itself. Uh, how they basically finished building that wall and everything uh, to go ahead and you know prevent them uh, from getting there. But it, uh, we wound up you know going over to was the India, mm-hmm. I think it was, to go ahead and find the yeah, patient zero. And they find out you know this one guy was bit, and then he bit the doctor. Then the doctor went crazy, and then they wind up. And the only way they can stop him is they they burnt the room. They went and just torched it. They go ahead and sign. And you actually still see like the uh, fingers moving on one of yeah. them, which is kind of, man, it's creepy as crap. It sure was. But there was uh, one of the soldiers there that was in there and they're mentioning how he was just lighting them all up and nobody was touching them. And he's walking with a limp. So this is kind of uh, Brad Pitt's character's second time he's seeing these zombie-ish characters not attacking somebody. You've seen in, in Philadelphia, well, there was a homeless guy sitting on the curb with like a brown bag and they ran right by him. Yeah. Now you have this character who's in there and they're not touching him and he's taking care of him he walks out you know fine they thought where was he bit now he wasn't bit they just didn't care for him because there's something physically not right about him there's his makeup there's an illness or something yeah and that's kind of the um the crux of this movie you you follow brad pitt's character kind of investigating the origins of this virus and trying to figure out what its weaknesses may be Uh, right from the jump when he actually says yes to kind of going on this mission like we mentioned earlier he doesn't have much choice if he wants to keep his family on that boat you know he signs up for it and he's with this actual doctor that is an expert on viruses and uh, he's a young guy so that's why they want Want Brad Pitt to go because he's more experienced. Uh, how did you feel when this this younger doctor uh, actually, you know, once they land that plane and he takes himself out? <laughs> when he slips and falls and shoots himself in the head? Yeah. It was kind of like, oh. It was almost comedic just how, like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> I almost feel like that's what they were kind of going for. Like, of course, yeah. <laughs> but he had one of the most memorable lines for me, though. Because when he's going on about Mother Nature and how, you know, all these things are going on, he said Mother Nature is a serial killer. Yeah. And she leaves clues to figure out how she can be caught. And she camouflages her weaknesses as strengths. Right. And I'm like, man, should we, should we be listening to this now and applying it somewhere else? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what he does, you know, his character isn't really in the movie for very long. He takes himself out, but he gets Brad Pitt's character to start thinking in those lines of of thought, right? I mean, he takes those words to heart, and through the rest of the movie, you start noticing and watching these events unfold and uh, seeing the same kind of clues that Brad Pitt is picking up on as well. Yeah, because he's already picked up on those too. Yeah. So he's he's probably looking for more. And then after the whole incident, you know, there in India, they find out we should go to Israel. Yeah. Because one of the guys there said, go to Israel. That's where you'll get your answer. Yeah. The guy, the the old CIA guy that was actually locked up in the basement, which is probably the safest place to be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so he makes his way to Jerusalem, which was uh, sort of a, it was its own safe harbor. They had these huge walls, and they were letting people in, but, you know, they were going through the old temperature check and those, you know, those gates, right? (laughs) Making sure that they were letting no infected in. Do you have a sore throat? Have you had a runny nose in the past week? (laughs) Yeah, and one of the good things about this virus is that you got to take the silver lining here, but because that, uh, you know, folks change within minutes... It was kind of easy to parse out the people that were infected versus the people that weren't. So they were able to kind of bring people in. But yeah, during this time, I don't know what made them start singing on the loudspeaker, but uh, folks were just kind of celebratory being in this safe place. They start getting real loud and rowdy and singing praise. And uh, all of a sudden you hear, you know, the microphone feedback and the zombies outside these walls start to go nuts. 
And uh, they just start running towards the wall, and they're running at such a pace and climbing on top of each other so high that they start spilling over the top of it. Yeah, then it, then it all breaks loose. Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty crazy. But there was a, there was a point in the movie uh, in the Israel area when he's talking to that one main like that one main guy. Now I can't remember the name of him for the life of me. But uh, he tells him about the tenth man, and then that tenth man should always be the one that disagrees if the other nine agree on on something. Right. And I'm thinking he's like, no, that's another one of those things that's kind of in genius that's within this movie if everyone thinks one way it can't hurt to have one person think the other and make them search and research and kind of go out of their way to find a way to prove that the other nine are wrong yeah if they're right it's impossible to, to prove right but it's one of those fail-safe type things which once again i said i thought was a very very cool thing that was within the movie yeah i thought so too um just him kind of coming across these different characters and learning these little uh, wisdoms from them each step along the way kind of helping him figure this mystery out um and he was another example but yet yeah, during the chaos in jerusalem you see um once again another example of these uh, Zeke, right? The zombies just like running full force through these halls. And you could tell that there's this one younger boy. He's kind of bald, very skinny, frail, might be sickly. Uh, they just run right past him. It's like party of the sea. Yeah. And uh, you start to figure out as a viewer, you're like, what's going on with these zombies? How they're not paying attention to these few folks. Like, why are they immune from their gaze, right? And later in the movie, Brad Pitt starts to put the pieces of the puzzle together. While his plane that he shut up on, dude bugged out on him and just left. <laughs> he was like, peace. <laughs> I waited long enough. Well, I noticed that um, over... Over, over the um, communications, they said that his helicopter went down. So I think he was assuming that Brad Pitt was dead. So it was like, what's the point of me hanging around? So he just takes off. He just off. takes off and leaves and gets, gets clearance and leaves. And Brad Pitt's character sees that he's thing is like, no, it's my ride. <laughs> so what? Him and like three other like of the Israel like army stop a plane yeah. from <laughs> Belarus Airlines or something like that. Like, why would they stop for him? <laughs> yeah, and, and one of these soldiers, played by Danielle Curtis, she got bit while they were trying to run to get Brad Pitt to escape. And uh, Brad Pitt, I keep calling him Brad Pitt. It's just easier. I mean, he's Brad Pitt, right? I don't. I know he's Jerry, but he's Brad Pitt in every movie. He has some quick thinking, and he hacks her hand off. Dude, how sharp was that knife when one shot oh. sliced right through? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, it was insane. But they got on this plane, he tended to her wound, and they, they escaped Jerusalem together. Which was pretty cool. And then that's when there's a, that bond between the two of them that are they're kind of building throughout this movie here. Yeah. But uh, yeah, then it, then it goes bad. You got that little doggy on the plane that all of a sudden is barking. And then uh, he's basically letting everyone know there's something someone in the elevator. Something, something's going on. Yeah, they had a stowaway from Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> Brad Pitt went ahead and uh, gave the, the pilots the phone to kind of get clearance of somewhere to go, somewhere to land. And they wind up going to the WHO you know, research area. Yeah, well, after talking to uh, Segan, the, the woman that he saved and they escaped with, um, he finally kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together that people that are infected with this virus, this virus is wanting to spread, but it's not necessarily looking for people who are already sick. Um, it's looking to spread to healthy bodies to help it spread even further. Um, so it actually ignores people that are already sick with some some heavy illnesses. And, uh, he, you know, he has this theory and he wants to prove it. So, you know, they give him some coordinates to the nearest World Health Organization uh, facility for research and uh, the plane actually gets some there but uh not without its issues <laughs> yeah well i think it went up in there in a few pieces <laughs> yeah he throws a grenade in a plane 
How do we think this is not going to go bad? Yeah, I mean, this whole thing... So, I was up to the movie to this point, and I still was after the fact, but the fact that Jerry Brad Pitt's character survived this plane crash was uh, fairly unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, this was, the, this was the biggest reach. If we're talking about a zombie movie and reaching, this was the reach. Now, he didn't walk away from it unscathed. Right. He did have, like, a piece of, like, metal through him or something in his lines where they actually were able to do surgery on him at that uh, research center. But, yeah, that's, that was probably the biggest reach of the movie outside of the uh, the unbelievable you know, zombie part of it you know he he meets up with um segan the woman that he helped save she survived the plane crash too remarkably of course yeah <laughs> and they kind of stumble into this town where the reach where the research center is located yeah he passes out the gate and she's hitting the button they go ahead and get him in and they get him in and he winds up tied down because well i mean you don't know if you're going to turn right and he wakes up and then he's got to explain who he is and then the phone. So he goes and gives him the phone and he gives him, you know, go ahead and call his contact at the UN. And uh, they go ahead and explain who he is, uh, why he was going there and everything. So they start you know, talking and trying to figure out, you know, where these viruses are and everything. And then they start explaining to him everything's over in the B-Wing. And B-Wing has, uh, well, it's infected with about 80 of uh, those uh, 80 Zeeks. You know, this guy has been spanning the world and been kind of out in the open. But I really enjoyed this third act where it's kind of brings the um, the scariness and the the jump scares into more confined areas where he has having to go down dark hallways. Uh, the three of these folks, one of the uh, WHO doctors, Segan and Jerry Brad Pitt's character, they uh, they go and they are making their way, each with a weapon in hand, almost like a video game, through these dark corridors to uh, try to get to these uh vials of diseases yeah and yeah you got the flashing lights you got the axe you got the, trying to be quiet then you're then they're crawling past like little openings where you know they can't see it yeah it almost had like a resident evil feel to it <laughs> yeah and these zombies i mean the sound work on this movie was really just scary i mean just the sound that these that came out of like the teeth chattering and the and the <sighs> i can't even do it <laughs> the guttural throat sounds uh, it was gross. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was well done. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. it was definitely, definitely well done. But yeah, when he finally gets over to where the you know everything is stored, now he does. He has no clue what will kill him, and basically they can't fix right or what's the when you know what they can go ahead and you know they got a vaccine for and he doesn't even know if any of this is going to work this is just a theory of his. <laughs> yeah and and it, i'm thinking in the back of my head it's like okay you're just trying to get home back to your kids but yeah you may inject yourself with something that you may not make it out of here regardless yeah and that's kind of the choice that he has to make throughout the movie like you know of course he wants to get back to his family but he is actually a, a sole agent that actually maybe potentially could have the chance of creating real change to push this virus back to to kind of solve the mystery around it so the human race in its entirety can kind of claw its way back to uh taking control of this whole thing yeah and i think he's got a clear understanding of that i think it was even his job prior to you know this adventure that we know him from yeah was kind of down the, the same line so he already had that mindset where he may have to do things that uh, others may not do so the fact that he went in and just picked something and inject himself and then sat there for 20, 30 minutes. It really didn't give us a you know a time frame, which it looked very cold in that little room he was in, which <laughs> <Yeah>. would suck. <laughs> yeah, and kind of the final showdown where one of these Zeeks was right outside the door. And uh, so he injected himself to kind of uh, prove his theory. And eventually he kind of lets the illness take control, kind of let it sit in his body so he's good and affected, right? <laughs> and he opens the door and, um, you know, it takes a minute. But this, this zombie just kind of walks right past him um, and, and doesn't attack him. So he, his 
theory is proven. Yeah, then he goes and grabs a Pepsi, drinks a Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> then lets all the Pepsis out of that uh, machine and ha- has the other Zeeks go running. They spread right around him as they're running. Yeah, then he's walking against the flow. Yeah. Which is uh, which is crazy. Then it goes into the whole, the WHO going ahead and making all these like viruses that are, are not like deadly. So, I mean, I, I always think of it like a, like a chicken pox. Or yeah. measles or things like that where the body is going to you know, recover from. So you really don't need to have a vaccination for uh, to go ahead and cure you from, you know, from once you had them. But to go ahead and like stop this. And you see all the world fighting back and them dropping them from planes. And One of the scenes that I'm, it was here in the U.S. where they're kind of corralling them into uh, the Coliseum in South yeah. Carol, California. And then they kind of blow it up. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy just to kind of watch these little clips of how the human race kind of fights back on a worldwide level against the Zeeks. And, uh, I mean, you get to hear it's very interesting now. This is kind of the end of uh, Brad Pitt's journey as Jerry. Um, but kind of the, one of the last things that he says is, uh, you know, this is just the beginning. Um, and uh, I don't know. It kind of promises for, you know, uh, another adventure, maybe another movie to kind of peek into how the human race fights its way back. But uh, do you think we'll ever get a World War Z2? <laughs> oh, they're working on it. Oh, are they? The, uh, the pandemic went ahead and slowed it down. Uh, to the point of rumor that it may have canceled it, but nothing is actually confirmed. Oh. So, yeah, they were already working on the possibility of a second one uh, just recently. So do you think it would be like a, a direct sequel with uh, Brad Pitt again or maybe another story in this world? I, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know if I want another story with Brad Pitt's character. I feel yeah. like we we learn enough from his character. The, the growth that we've seen in his character from... You know, waking up in bed with his wife and his kids jumping on him and making pancakes to basically solving how to save humanity yeah. is, is is a full character arc. Right. I don't know what you do beyond that. And I think it would be more interesting to have almost like an anthology series to where you could have different movies take place in this World War Z setting, but follow different characters and their arcs and how they help the fight. Yeah, it could be like, say, another doctor that gets the word on how to do this right after the fact. or. Right. We get like a, a military type movie that's within this world showing how they're corralling and what they're doing to go ahead and, you know, uh, get rid of the current, you know, Zeeks um, that are out there. Uh, something that I, I like your idea, though, you know, kind of building on top of the movie, maybe just like layering it right from at the end of the last one. So the last one would be the last one. And maybe the last two are happening simultaneously right. in different parts of the world. Yeah, I like that idea. I mean, it kind of harkens back to the book itself, right? As, as these are different entries from different people and they're different accounts of uh, the worldwide events. Um, I think that would make sense for the movie series if they decide to continue making these movies. So that's World War Z, uh, another one that Chris and I really enjoyed. Uh, a couple of good picks this week. Uh, once again, I mean, if you haven't seen it for whatever reason, definitely check it out, especially if, you know, the zombies genre is your cup of tea. I think uh, you can't really miss this one. You need to see it. But yeah, uh, some good movies, blockbusters. Yeah. Yeah, this one here, though, I would say go into it knowing what it is. I mean, I went into it knowing exactly what it is, and I found the movie difficult to watch, even though I enjoyed the movie prior six months ago before any of this, what we were going through now. But uh, just be aware of that little nugget, because like I said, I had a hard time getting through maybe the first 30, 40 minutes of it just for that uh, that reasoning by itself. But it's, it's an amazing movie. Yeah. So, I mean... We've been doing all these, you know, here, you know, all these going through the genres. We told you there's some movies that we, we couldn't mention them all. There's no way that we can watch all these great movies. Definitely in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, those those one after another. I mean, those E.T. I know you're a huge Raiders of the Lost Ark or just Indiana Jones in general. Well, then, then we have your favorite Christmas movie. 
Die Hard. <laughs> yeah, right. That came out in July. That's not a Christmas movie. Hey, it takes place during <laughs> Christmas. It's got a Christmas themes and Christmas music. It's a Christmas movie. <laughs> we'll leave that debate for another day. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you mentioned just some, I mean, there's Empire Strikes Back. There's E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, E.T. is a huge one for me. I, I don't revisit E.T. very often, but when I do, I like I just can't stop watching. That's another one of John Williams' score, Steven Spielberg. You know, I'll be right here. That, that one came out the year I was born, so it, I love that movie. But what are some of your uh, some of your other picks that uh, you thought about in the nineties? In the nineties was big. Uh, yeah, I mean that that was pretty much when we were getting into our fandom. Like the eighties yeah. was when we were born, so we were watching them. You know, when we were older. The nineties was kind of when we started becoming you know fans ourselves. Right. So we had the Terminator series. Like Terminator Two came out in the summer. Jurassic Park. We just talked about Jurassic World. I mean, we can't get more into that. But that, I mean, that came out in 93. Let me tell you how big that movie was. It was 93. The budget was $63 million. That made over a billion dollars. In 1993. In 93. So that, Which, that today, gets, I don't know what inflation would be, but maybe $2 billion? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but man, that made a truck ton of money. I mean, go figure. They, they, I would make more movies out of that franchise if they made a billion dollars in 93. Yeah. And another one, I mean, if you were a 90s kid, if you were born after the 90s, then you probably don't have a huge affinity for this movie. But if you were alive in the 90s, then you know how big Forrest Gump was. I mean, that movie just took over pop culture for an entire year almost. And it was a tremendous movie. I always, well, I would never forget the memory of me, you, and Don going to Cherry Hill. Yep. To see that movie. And he got up and he went to the bathroom, went to concessions or something, and people were fighting over seats. Oh, yeah. It was a draw, man. Yeah, that was, and that's one of those memories, like movie memories that are implanted, uh, you know, in my head. Yeah. Another favorite of mine. I love that you listed it here. And it's one that, man, it, just seeing it here makes me want to watch it again sometime soon. But uh, 1997 Twister with Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. It's a movie that shouldn't be as fun as it is, but man, is that movie fun. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to get Dorothy to fly. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? The special effects were great. I mean, it, it was a showcase movie for a while. Like, you know, if you had like a new surround sound setup, like a new home theater setup, Twister was what you put in to showcase it. It was Twist, Twister and Casper. The opening scene of Casper. <laughs> when yep. he comes down the, the railing, you hear him out of all speakers. Yeah. And, the, and then Twister gives you the full effect later in the movie. <laughs> yeah, just pretty great picks. How about the 2000s? Tooth Man, honestly, after 2000, it became harder and harder. For, I know for me, and I think we discussed this with you as well, to find movies that were fitting our criteria here. Yeah. And even the one I put here, I, I kind of broke the criteria on it because it's a comic book movie. But it's it's Batman The Dark Knight. But it was with you know Heath Ledger. It's one of my favorite of all time when it comes to Batman. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I it made oh, this is another one that made over a billion dollars, but this was in 08. So I mean, the billion in 08 and a billion in 93 kind of don't weigh the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing the midnight showing of The Dark Knight. And I mean, people, we, we've even had other Batman. We've had Ben Affleck and we're, we have a new Robert Pattinson Batman on the way. But I think all of them that were kind of compared to Christian Bale and Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. And they yeah. probably will be going forward. In my mind, I mean, this is kind of, people started getting hokey with you know i'm batman <laughs> the, 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 you know the christian bale voice and everything but in my i mean this may be controversial i don't even know how controversial it is I, he's my favorite batman yeah you know those three movies he did were my favorite batman movies and you know the last one with bane and everything is the least of the three but for what it is you know dark knight was amazing 
And then more recently in, in the 2010s, you know, like Chris said, it was kind of hard to pick something out that wasn't already like a Harry Potter movie or a Star Wars film. You know, the big franchises that, you know, we weren't really kind of looking at, but It is one that you had listed. Stephen King's It came out in September 2017, I believe. And man, I mean, the budget, $35 million to make it, and it brought back $701 million. I mean, you sure. talk about making your money back. <laughs> yeah. Now, this was my, I know this is a book and a franchise that you hold near and dear to your heart as oh, well. Yeah. This was my first experience with it. Now, it wasn't even in a theater. I seen the remake of it prior to the most recent one, It 2, coming out. Yeah. So, this wasn't even something that I watched. I, I mean, I looked at getting the audiobook for this. And when it said like 39 hours or something <laughs> crazy, I was like, I'm, that's a hard pass. That's just too much. I can't need to dedicate myself to that. But I enjoyed the movie. I, I, almost as far as I may even put a red balloon out in front of my house on Halloween. <laughs> that would be a good idea. With like a little like paper boat next, next to my storm drain. Oh, that would be great. Man, I, I love both of those movies. But yeah, that was a huge success in the tail end of the summertime there in 2017. But yeah, I mean, as far as honorable mentions, that's just some of the other films that Chris and I love and have fond memories of. And I don't know, we just hope you guys enjoyed this four-part summer series. Yeah, I mean, go on Twitter. Let us know if this is something that you guys enjoyed us doing. I mean, I know I enjoyed you know, revisiting a bunch of these movies that I haven't seen forever. I think I can speak for you as well as something you enjoyed doing. Yeah. We can we can easily do it with a different type of genre if it's, you know, Halloween movies later on or or whatever. I mean, yeah, let us know what you guys think. We'd love to hear from you. I think this is a perfect time right now to jump into that Jeep and cruise right into that cheesy. What do you think? <laughs> Let's do it. Must go faster. Must go faster. <laughs> So, I have a joke that is dinosaur-related. Oh, good. Okay, so how did the Triceratops speed up his computer? How did the Triceratops speed up his computer? I don't know. He gave it a good ram. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Nice. I look good. <laughs> All right, so mine's somewhat zombie-related. It actually, I'm pulling it from uh, a new video game that's out currently. If you if you guys play it, then you know it's it's The Last of Us Part Two on PlayStation. It's kind of the big title that's out right now. Uh, but Joel, the main character, he gives a corny dad joke at the beginning of this game. Uh, what's the worst part about eating a clock? No idea. It's time-consuming. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that, that's definitely that joke. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there you go. Hey, with a couple of good movies, a couple of good stinky dad jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll we'll roll with that there. Uh, if you want more of our dad jokes, uh, keep an eye on our social media. I'm uh, pretty good at putting them out there, letting you guys judge us on our, our, our stinkiness. Yeah, join us too on dadnarock.com. You'll find, of course, past episodes and links to all of our social media pages, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Uh, but yeah, it's a great place to hang out, dadnarock.com. I think that's a good place for us to go ahead and say Dad and Rock Podcast is signing off. Monster is a relative term. To a canary, a cat is a monster. We're just used to being a cat. Ba-dum-bum. Shh.